Welcome to Conversations at the Cohen Center, a podcast about the humanities and interdisciplinarity, produced by the Cohen Center for the Humanities at James Madison University. Welcome to Conversations at the Cohen Center. My name is Connor, and today I am sitting down with Dr. Cyril Uwe, Assistant Professor of Religion at JMU. Welcome to the podcast, CJ. Yeah, thanks, Connor. Thanks for having me. So just introduce yourself and tell me a bit about yourself. As you said, my name is uh, Cyril Uwe. I go by CJ. I'm an Assistant Professor of Religion at the Department of Philosophy and Religion. I work primarily in Islamic studies. My specialty is on 13th century Islamic philosophy and Sufism. And I'm primarily interested in questions of knowledge. So what does it mean to know things? How do people become knowing beings? How do different kinds of people get excluded from systems of knowledge production? And how is knowledge cultivated through texts, personal interactions, and all that other types of, type of stuff? Awesome. Describe in depth like your research interests. Has anything in your life significantly impacted and fostered these interests? Ooh, yeah, right. The personal question right oh, off the yeah. bat. Hard hitting. <laughs> yeah. Um again, my research interests more broadly have to do with the question of knowledge, but also the relationship between knowledge and identity. Um and I'm really interested in the ways that different ways of being, different kinds of people are constructed through different ways of producing knowledge. So this is something that I've always been concerned with, I guess, obliquely. I come from a mixed race and mixed culture family. My mom's black American. My dad is an immigrant from the Philippines. And we also have different family members from all over. And growing up, one of the things that I found interesting was, you know, you move throughout these different communities, you talk to people, and they all have very different or at least slightly different ways of approaching what it means to to really be a person, what it means to know things, what are the moral frameworks that we operate in, how do we grieve when people die, how do weddings work, what does the relationship between different family members, how is that supposed to play out? And just ever since I was a kid, noticing these kinds of differences and how people negotiated them or how you can kind of build bridges between them or even have commitments to both, even in cases where they're incommensurable or don't really fit together. I found that more frustrating when I was younger, but more as a kind of productive analytical opportunity for myself as an adult. So a lot of the research I do in the 13th century is interested in in how people actually understand themselves in relation to people around them and negotiate between all of these different ways of conceptualizing the world, really. Talk to me about your studies and your research when it pertains to like your educational background. I saw that you have two master's degrees and a PhD. So what inspired you to pursue both of those? And what did you write your dissertation on? See, I guess I went into undergrad and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I think my first semester of college, I took advanced conversational Spanish, intro to calculus, physics, and intro to the Hebrew Bible. Interesting. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I was like, oh, these look cool. I'll explore. They fit in with my schedule. And the Hebrew Bible course, not to knock the other ones, but the Hebrew Bible course was by far the most interesting Mm -hmm. of the things that I had taken that semester. And I decided to follow that up with a New Testament course the next semester. And then eventually I hit on uh, this intro to Islam course. 
and we got to 13th century Sufism, actually. This guy, Ibn Arabi, who's considered to be kind of one of the most important Sufi thinkers of the medieval period, and it, it really just blew my mind. I couldn't get enough of it. I had never read anything like it before, just the sheer intellectual virtuosity of, uh, of his writing um, just completely sucked me in. And I eventually started taking all of the courses in Islamic studies that I could. Uh, I ended up writing my undergrad senior thesis with the professor with whom I had taken that first intro to Islam course. And yeah, I was, I figured, you know, I, I really like this stuff. I, I seem to be pretty good at it. I'll, I'll just keep going. So I applied to a master's degree, uh, went to the UK, studied uh, 10th century Neoplatonic encyclopedia called the Epistles of the Brethren of Purity. Eventually wound up in a PhD program. And I guess the, the rest is history. So, and yeah, I guess you asked about my dissertation. The dissertation focuses on a 13th century thinker called Saadeddin Hamouya. And in his time period, he was incredibly prolific and also incredibly well-respected by his peers. So he is friends and colleagues with some of the top Sufis of the 13th century all across the Islamic world. And then after he dies, people hold on to him as this key kind of intellectual giant from occult thinkers to Mongol overlords, uh, Sufi hagiographers. They all point back to this one guy as a super important figure. The problem is contemporary scholarship doesn't really know what to do with him. When you open up his work, it seems, to be honest, utterly bizarre and incomprehensible. And the point of my dissertation was to show that part of the problem is actually our contemporary impoverished ideas of what knowledge can be and how it can be articulated and really provoked in people through text. So by reconceptualizing what 13th century knowledge was like, we actually can open up all these different ways of analyzing these texts and getting all these rich ideas out of them. Awesome. I've never I've never heard of him before. I've taken a, a few religion classes in my undergraduate experience just because uh, they just fit in with my schedule and I just thought mm-hmm. that they would be cool. Yeah. And they definitely were. I mean, I took History of Christianity my freshman year and that was like my favorite class almost like at, throughout all of undergrad just because I was I had a great instructor. Yeah. And it's about taking like a different perspective of something that you already have a base knowledge of sometimes. Yeah. And this is what I think is super fun about religious studies. Everyone thinks it's just going to like train you to be a priest or an imam Mm -hmm. or rabbi or something like that. But as you said, it's really about opening up new possibilities for thinking about things and drawing new types of connections across stuff that seemed familiar to you, opening up bridges between different ways of seeing the world and between you know, texts and practices and social organization, all these different types of things. Right. And I feel like those different ways of seeing the world can impact you, whether you know you do be- go on to become you know a priest or someone in religion or just in your career, in your daily life. I think that it can provide a really unique perspective on how you go about your, your day to day. Absolutely. Have you found that in your studies and especially like in students that you've taught, have they had that kind of takeaway from your classes? I think so. So I talked to a few students after they finished the class and it's funny, a lot of them come in and they're like, you know, I just took this really to knock out a gen ed requirement or something and I thought I was really going to hate it. But I realized, yes, studying religion isn't lo and behold, it's not about being indoctrinated into any set of like creedal beliefs or something. Mm -hmm. But 
it's about gaining these tools for thinking about the world and thinking about your relationship to other people in new ways or kind of taking what seemed familiar and making it really strange or vice versa. And I think for a lot of students, it's exciting. It's a, an exciting approach and gives them kind of new tools that they can then take to whatever field or whatever profession they decide to pursue. Right. And that's the beauty of gen eds, I think. I think a lot of students kind of want to just knock them out and not think about them anymore, but they can really provide an extra spin on your degree. And like it can lead you to a new major and a new minor or something that you didn't think that you would be interested in. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, that to me is kind of what college is all about. Sure, you want to gain certain types of skills that'll help you become employable or whatever profession you decide to pursue, but also it's a chance for you to explore and really develop new kinds of interests. Mm -hmm. If I had never taken that Hebrew Bible class, I I probably wouldn't have opened up this whole world that (laughs) I've basically become obsessed with, right? I'm trained to be a professional in it, but, you know, I had no background um, in religious studies. I didn't even really know you could do that before I signed up for the courses. Side note, how was living in the UK and doing a master's there? Like, how, what were, like, challenges of going abroad and living there? It was great. I loved living in the UK. As far as challenges, I don't know. I mean... There might not be any. I mean, I, yeah. I've just never, I've never lived abroad before. And I yeah. think that's a, such an interest of so many students, especially now when people are looking at grad schools, a lot of people are looking abroad. I mean, for me, it's uh, like, I would say, I mean, I didn't find it particularly challenging. It was more just an exciting opportunity for me. I get to live in a new place, interact with different kinds of people, and really just expand my horizons. The The school system, so I went to Cambridge, mm. and it operates really differently than the American system did. So figuring out how to navigate that, adjusting to college life um, in the UK, doing things like joining the the rowing club and, and doing crew every morning. Like, these were all things that I'd never done before, but they really just opened up new types of ways of being for me. I know I keep saying that in a really abstract <laughs> sense, but I, I do think, like, expanding your repertoire of the ways in which you can engage with the world mm-hmm. and think about things and relate to people, I think, is super important. What brought you to JMU specifically from, you know, all, all your whole background to now? Yeah. Uh, so basically, I went on the job market as you know any PhD, uh, newly minted PhD does, or at least almost newly minted. And you know, I applied to a bunch of places, got some interviews and things, and I really liked what would have been my future colleagues at JMU. They were super curious about my work. They they didn't talk down to me. They were interested in kind of opening up new kinds of conversations and bridge like dialogues across our disparate research areas and fields. And one of the things that really hooked me also was I had to do a teaching demo for a, a REL 101 class. And I actually just really loved the students. I, you know, I did a unit on uh, Sufism or Islamic mysticism in West Africa and the question of, well, what is religious experience and how do we communicate it to other people or can it even be communicable? Mm -hmm. And the students did a wonderful job with the lesson. They were super curious. They asked lots of questions. Um, They brought out insights in the material that I wasn't even thinking about when I put the lesson together. 
part of the thing that drew me to JMU was actually the the students and being excited about being able to teach these classes and having students who would be engaged and want to learn the stuff. Oh, that's great. I'm really glad that you connected with the students really well, I think. Yeah. And post-COVID or like, you know, we're still technically in the pandemic, but after everything shut down, I think that there's been a lot of frustration with instructors and students. And so I'm really glad to hear that you have a connection with the students and that the students are engaging with you too. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean, for teaching, I, I think of it more as a dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. You're presenting material, yeah, because you know some things and have types of skills and backgrounds that the students don't necessarily have. But to me, it's most interesting when you can actually open up a conversation and have new insights come out of that dialogue. And it's been really exciting for me. A lot of the stuff that I work on for my research, even though I don't teach on it directly, those themes come up and and students have been really helpful in helping me think through a lot of the really thorny, difficult problems that my work has to do with. What about the opportunities at JMU and within the philosophy and religion department excite you moving forward, going to the future? Already, how, how long have you been here actually? This is my second year. Ah, so not nice. super long. Yeah. So you're settling in a little bit. Yeah, getting the hang of things, figuring out what all these acronyms... So many acronyms at JMU. (laughs) So many. (laughs) Yeah, it's brutal. I've got a little cheat sheet where I have them all written down. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. So what do you you see moving forward in the future? Things that maybe groups that you can get involved in or classes that you can teach or just anything that you have in mind that's stirring... Yeah, um, I mean, for me right now, I'm I'm putting together new classes uh, again. Since I've only been here for two years, mm-hmm. um, I haven't kind of like fully unfurled my plan of all the different Islamic studies classes that I've been teaching. I'll be teaching at JMU, so like planning those classes and designing them um, has been lots of fun, and I'm excited about some things that are rolling out. But also within the department, you know, we have two tracks: a philosophy track and a religion cl- track. And in the past, they haven't work together that much. But what we're doing in the future, which is really exciting, is we're starting to do these team-taught courses with a philosopher and a professor of religious studies teaching together. And it's really cool because you get to bring together two people who have expertise in different areas, but also you know, the methods of the academic study of philosophy and the academic study of religion are a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So students not only get to see multiple perspectives on the same kinds of material, they also can see what it's like when you put those perspectives in productive tension. Like, what does it look like to disagree in a productive way? And what types of interesting insights and ideas can come out of those those productive disagreements? That's awesome. I um, I think back to a philosophy class that I took um, in undergrad, and it's very similar in the fact that, like, there was a lot of debate and healthy disagreement, like you mentioned, and healthy ways of having a valid point and still respecting someone else's valid point. I think that's something that we definitely need, and especially being able to have younger students conceptualize that and be able to take that on. Yeah, and it's, it's very easy to, like, tell people how to do it, right? But Mm -hmm. it doesn't really sink in until you can see people modeling it for you, right? What does this actually look like? How does this play out in practice? And that's one of the things that I'm really excited about with these team-taught courses. So what classes do you teach, and can you just describe a little bit about each course? So I do a bunch of courses, and they're generally more thematically oriented. And in general, they focus on the idea that Islam isn't just one thing, right? This is a religious tradition that has spread all over the globe 
all these different types of communities and different groups of Muslims approach Islam differently. Sometimes the idea of what Islam is can be radically different among different Muslim communities. Mm-hmm. Giving a sense of that diversity and using Islam as actually a window into the communities of Muslims and the different types of intellectual, social, embodied traditions that are bound up with it, that's the that's the main focus of what I'm trying to do. Mm. So I do a course called Knowledge and Identity in Islam, which kind of, I don't want to say my bread and butter, but it focuses on a lot of the key themes of, of my research, of thinking about the ways in which Muslims produce their identities through engaging with different kinds of knowledge in conversation with, with other groups of people or with the worlds that they're embedded in. I just do an intro to Islam course called Islamic Religious Traditions, where we kind of explore intellectual traditions, different types of practices, all the way from the 7th century up to the contemporary era, going from places like Detroit to Damascus, uh, all over the globe. I do a course called, what was it, Gender and Sexuality in Islam. Again, different ways that Muslims have approached questions of what is gender, what is sexuality, how does it play out, and, you know, focusing on the often radical radically different ways that these things have been conceptualized by Muslims across time. Now I'm doing a course called Islam in Africa, and we're looking at mostly West African Muslim traditions, uh, again, just across time. That's really cool. So what are you hoping that your students take away from each of these courses? Mostly, I mean, I'd like them to get a familiarity with the kind of diversity of like Muslim thought and practice. Mm. But really, I want them to develop like a way of thinking, a way of being able to approach texts, music videos, like artifacts, art, right? To use these as windows into the different types of communities and societies that produce them. Mm-hmm. But also in so doing to parochialize or bring into question their own worldviews, their own Mm -hmm. approaches to the world. So, you know, in many of these different courses, we're looking at radically different approaches to to thinking about what it means to be a human being, right? Someone in the 13th century is not going to have the same sets of assumptions or ideas about the world that we do in the contemporary period. Mm -hmm. So how do you productively engage with that type of material and take it seriously, but also in what ways can those different ways of imagining the world bring into question or kind of make you think differently about your own ideas, your own commitments, your own worldviews, really. Right. And how do you wrap your head around how somebody might think across the world that doesn't have the same upbringing, the same way of life, the same resources as you do? Yeah. I think that that's a really interesting way to look at way to look at the worldview and how to take away a different way of thinking as well. Just because I, I think JMU has gotten more diverse within the past few years, but it's still in Harrisonburg. It's still like the middle of Virginia. Mm-hmm. So it's a really uniquely situated. I think it has a very unique student body. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And I mean, by engaging with those differences and being sensitive to them, mm -hmm. you also start to realize the dimensions of your own experience, our own positionality that you kind of inadvertently map onto other people or project mm -hmm. and you don't even realize it, right? It's not like you're intentionally trying to transform everyone else into versions of yourself, but being sensitive to those differences makes you think, oh, well, wait a minute, not everyone thinks about this in this way, or this isn't actually universal to everyone else's experience, which can be really helpful for any kind of interpersonal human interaction. Yeah, absolutely. It's really cool to see that your classes, though they might be on a really specific topic that some people might know, not know anything about, can have such a universal takeaway that students can put into action in their own daily lives or in their careers and be able to say, this class actually taught me how to think differently. It's really inspiring. Thanks. I mean, <laughs> hopefully that's the goal as yeah. far as how effective it is. You'll have to ask uh, some of my former students, I guess. But you know, at least that's what we're trying to do yeah. in some way or another. Awesome. Awesome. So what's your favorite part about JMU and the Harrisonburg community? I don't know. I mean, I think I talked about, we touched on it a little bit. Like I, I I love my department, I love my colleagues, mm -hmm. um, and I love interacting with the students. Um, I would say, yeah, it might be cliche, but just getting in the classroom and teaching has been my favorite part about being in JMU. Like I said, it's, you know, some days are tougher than others, but being able to share these ideas and these traditions, these texts that I really love and that take up a huge part of my life. Being able to share them with students and, and kind of see them with new eyes each semester is just incredibly exciting for me. So that's really great to hear that it's coming to JMU. That's the favorite part about JMU. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I guess it would be kind of a bummer if it was like, yeah, I guess the farmer's market on Saturday is my favorite part about JMU. It's the highlight of my week. Yeah. I mean, it is. I, I mean, it's one of the highlights. I love going to the farmer's market. Like, shout out to Magpie Bakery. Oh, yeah, that uh, place is awesome. They're, you know, awesome, great, great baked goods. You know, go every Saturday. But it really is, yeah, interacting with, with my colleagues and my students. Like, university life mm -hmm. is part of why I got into this job in the first place. That's great. So what advice do you have for students who want to pursue studies in the humanities, specifically in philosophy and religious studies? I would say... Just keep an open mind, mm -hmm. I guess, especially if you're interested in the humanities. There's so much out there. I mean, there's so much in religious studies. There's so much in philosophy and the history of philosophy. You never really know what that thing is going to be that will spark your interest. That mm -hmm. thing is that you will kind of get obsessed with or really want to dive down the rabbit hole for. And exposing yourself to you know, a whole bunch of different courses or things that you might initially not think you were, would be interested in to keep an open mind and, and seriously engage with them. You never know what types of possibilities will be opened up. I'll also say uh, learn languages. You know, a lot of mm -hmm. people I think are intimidated by language learning or something like that, but learning a different language can open up a whole new world of ideas of, you know, cultural contexts of mm. like jokes and humor like <laughs> music you know all of this stuff just by you know sitting in a language class and doing some study on your own 
you know, you can, again, really learn to start seeing the world in new ways. And, like, yeah, it's tough, but, you know, once you start going, it also makes it easier to learn more languages. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, how many languages do you know? Do you know any others? No, I guess is a, <laughs> a strong word, but, you know, my research is primarily in Arabic and Persian. So oh, okay. I learned Arabic in college and then Persian in grad school. So, you know, I read medieval texts written both of those languages. Oh, awesome. I had to learn like how to read French and German in grad school just to deal with uh, different scholarship in my field that had been written in French and German. I took Spanish in high school and college, and currently I'm learning Italian because my partner's family is Italian. So in order to talk to like her grandma and her aunts and uncles and stuff, when we go and visit them in Italy, I have to kind of bone up on my Italian <laughs> Hey, that's a great reason. I mean, if you have a partner that has speaks a different language, like no, no better way to impress their family, right? Yeah, and you don't <laughs> want to seem like, you know, you go in... And the first few times I visited before I really had any Italian language skills, I just felt like a little kid where I'm just saying the most basic sentences. Like, <laughs> here I am, someone with like a PhD doing high-level research in the humanities, and it's like, hello, I am good today. You know? <laughs> so trying to it's it's really hard to communicate your, you know, your personality to someone if you if you aren't able to to you know articulate your thoughts in their language. Yeah, especially when you're reading in a different language, it gives you the full purpose of that reading. Yeah. And you're not experiencing different translations that could mean separate different things when you're reading in that language. It's like the whole meaning in one because some, like especially I think German has a lot of different words that we in English don't necessarily have and we can piece together too. I think there's a lot of different languages where there's like different words to describe things that in English is just just like, so it could be this or it could be this. <laughs> yeah. And in some cases, like the, the stuff that I work on, in these Arabic and Persian texts, so much of the meaning that's being produced is through subtle uses of language. Mm. So the guy, Hamuya, who I work on, he's like obsessed with punning and with like rhymes in Arabic and different types of etymological connections. Mm. And sometimes the way he'll make meaning is through actually just the sound of the Arabic language. So he'll repeat certain letters or certain sounds as a way of kind of mapping different ways that reality is unfolding or transforming. And reading it in translation doesn't really get the full effect of that because it's not, you know, to use a technical term, it's not really discursive. He's not laying about laying out facts mm -hmm. about stuff. He's using sound as a way of provoking a way of, of feeling and experiencing reality. Oh, that's really cool. So it's like you wouldn't get the same rhymes if you were to translate that in another language. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I mean... The idea of rhyme and rhyming mm. in English feels way different yes. than it does in Arabic, right? You start rhyming or something and it, it feels like a nursery rhyme or like Humpty Dumpty or mm -hmm. something like that. I mean, people do do it really well, so that's not to knock them. But when you're trying to translate, if you're if you're trying to rhyme in the same way, sometimes it can it can sound really corny, whereas in the Arabic and the Persian, it actually sounds like quite poignant and profound. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's like listening to, I can compare that to like listening to like Hispanic music versus English, music in English or like sometimes when they try to translate to each other you like you can tell like what was written in that language yeah, and yeah, yeah, sung exactly, in that language right. yeah really cool do you have any final thoughts any anything else that 
you would want students to know or even even anything else about your research that um, inspire our listeners or that they might have interest in or yeah I mean perhaps one of the things I mean that has become more important to me recently is you know we often think about our academic lives and the things that we study as completely separate from you know our personal everyday <laughs> human lives <laughs> but actually thinking about ways in which the things that you do in the classroom intersect with you know what's important to you or what you find fun or interesting outside can actually be really productive for all dimensions of your life. Mm-hmm. One of the things that is important to me is music. So I play I play in a punk band. We tour all over the world, all over the country. That's a lot of fun. But recently I've actually been using music and the idea of music performance and improvisation as like a theoretical lens or, or a particular angle to think through a lot of the questions that play out in my research. So I just mentioned to you the guy who's using different kinds of sounds to provoke feelings in people. Well, to me, that actually has a lot of resonances with the question of musical performance and especially jazz improvisation. So the different ways in which you can develop a sensibility for improvising, for hearing certain types of harmonic progressions and and playing through those changes, I see a lot of similarities with how these 13th century thinkers are trying to cultivate knowledge as a particular way of being in the world, of of reacting to the changes of life and the ever-shifting world of reality. So bringing multiple interests together in ways that kind of might be unexpected has actually been really fruitful and fulfilling for me, both personally and academically. That's awesome. That's a, that's a really great way to think of going through college and going even going into post-grad, whatever students decide to do, like your does really benefit. I find that too. It does really benefit to like have things overlap because you can learn from different things in your life and they can, they can inform other things that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Um, well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center. Make sure to follow us at Instagram and Twitter at JMU Cohen Center. And be on the lookout for more conversations at the Cohen Center.